0: Now, Isaiah turns a very sharp corner here. And suddenly he begins to explain and describe what we could call practical wickedness. So here's the negative. Here's what you don't want to do if you want to walk righteously. Verse 9. All you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, come to eat. John heard similar language, by the way, in Revelation 19, verse 17. When he wrote, "...I saw an angel standing in the sun..." And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. In this case, in Isaiah verse nine of chapter fifty six, the beasts of the field, the beasts of the forest called to eat, are the nations surrounding Israel. And they are invited to come eat as judgment on the leaders and the people of Judah. His watchmen are blind, verse 10. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark, dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding, and they all have turned to their own way, each to one to his unjust gain, to the last one. Come, they say, let us get wine, let us drink heavily of strong drink, and tomorrow will be like today, only more so. <laughs> now here's the application of all this, for those of you who are really looking for some you know, principles of practical wickedness. Which, by the way, I almost called it practical dullness because wickedness and dullness are the same thing. The more wicked you are, the more dull your senses are to the things of the Lord. Practical wickedness. He talks about blindness there in verse 10. He he describes laziness. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. He describes greed. The dogs are greedy, they're not satisfied. He describes foolishness, shepherds with no understanding, turning to their own way rather than to His way, which is higher than our way. He talks about selfishness. Each one is turning to his unjust gain, to the very last one and self-indulgence come let us get wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink but notice this don't miss the final and most acute accusation of wickedness in the whole list and tomorrow will be like today only more so what is that? how is that a sign of wickedness? gang it is those who see prophecy as impractical because tomorrow is just going to be like today just more of the same where is the promise of His coming? Tomorrow's the same as today. Today is the same as yesterday. Nothing really changed. And the, Lord, the, the world is just rolling on. And Peter says, In the last days mockers will come with mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Practical wickedness, gain requires little more than ignorance of Bible prophecy. Bible prophecy encourages practical righteousness. Ignore the prophecy and you start to become dull of mind. That assumption that tomorrow is no different than today. That's what happens without the clearer perspective of prophecy. That every day is just more of the same. Now chapter 57 continues on. And he says this, The righteous man perishes and no one takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest on their beds. Each one who walked in his upright way. Now there's an historical issue being addressed in these first two verses of chapter 57. The last king of Judah during the life of Isaiah was, we know, Manasseh. One of the most evil kings of all of Judah's history. Manasseh, we're told in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 16, shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. And tradition holds that it was Manasseh who saw to the execution of Isaiah. Remember, by having him sawn in half, Manasseh most likely did that. Jewish tradition believes that's what happened. But I read this, and I've I've gone to this place before. In fact, we may have even talked about it together a few times, but Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2 are the best response, I believe, in all of Scripture that answer this question. Why do we tragically lose righteous people early on? Why does someone who has dedicated his life to the Lord, someone who has given her life for serving Jesus, why do they die young? Why are they pulled out? Why the tragedy? How how could God? Why does God, a good, loving God, let good people die? That's the world's question. And from a Christian perspective, you might ask, okay, why Dietrich Bonhoeffer? I know I've talked a lot about him lately. Thirty-nine years old when he died in prison. Thirty-nine. How much could he have done as a great theologian if God had allowed his life to continue? Jim Elliot, a young man in his twenties when he was killed on the mission field. Rich Mullins, my favorite Christian artist, who I know had years of fantastic Christian music left in him to write. I'm sure he's writing for Jesus now. But he was taken out in a car accident, thrown from a jeep on a freeway, running, throwing into oncoming traffic and was killed. And people ask, God, why do these righteous people die young? The righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds. Each one who walked in his upright way. Gang, we need to learn this. We need to learn how to rest in peace. Wait a minute. Okay, so you're saying the greater my righteousness, the greater my chance of an early death. No. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have a very skewed understanding this side of heaven. We see death as tragic. We see death as sorrowful. We see death as something to hold off as long as possible. And God says, wait a minute. When you come home on on my terms, when I bring you home, guess what? It's the best thing possible. It's what I've got for you. And it doesn't mean we try to take ourselves out early. Well, I think I'm righteous enough. I'm going home. You know, no. No. We need to learn how to live in... This is the fourth principle for practical righteousness. We need to learn how to live in a comforting peace. A comforting peace. This is the peace of the righteous. Whether they're taken out of this world so they don't have to deal with sin and evil and hardship anymore, they're taken home to be with Jesus. A young man, a young woman who dies in faith. gay. praise God, they will never have to deal with sin. They will never have to deal with the sorrow of this world. That's done there with Jesus. That's a good thing. Think of Josiah. Here's another example of one who died young. Great King Josiah, one of three kings who ach- who attained the gold standard of David. One of three only, where it was re- referred to him that he, boy, he was like his father David, who was a man after God's own heart. And about Josiah, 2 Kings 23-25, it says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any king like him arise after him. Josiah was the best of the best. And yet he died of a stray arrow in battle at the age of 39. 39! But there was a prophecy that was spoken over, uh, over Josiah when he was 26 years old, Second Chronicles 34-28, the prophetess Huldah said this, The Lord said through Huldah, Behold, Josiah, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, so your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. You are going to die, young Josiah. The prophecy was spoken. You're going to die before any of the hardship, any of the wrath that I'm going to pour out on the Jewish people, I'm going to pull you out ahead of that was God's promise. From our limited perspective, death is sorrow. From God's eternal perspective, the righteous who go early or young are spared from the evil of this life. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1.21 For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I want to have that, that attitude in life. To live is Christ, and so I want to live, but to die is gain, so if I die, great. And by the way, those of you who are saying, yeah, but I really want to wait for the rapture. You don't have to. If you die before the rapture comes, guess what? You get raptured first. You beat the rest of us. So don't don't get bummed out, you know, if if you happen to die, you know, as you're up there with Jesus. Well, I just wish I was down there waiting for the rapture right now. Paul says if I am to live on in the flesh it means fruitful labor for me and I don't know which to choose. I'm hard pressed from both directions. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better and yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake as not a death wish it is a life understanding. And so we need how to learn we need to learn how to enter into this comforting rest of God. We walk, we rest in peace now or then, either way does not matter, we rest in the peace of the Lord Jesus. And by the way, just beyond the midpoint of the tribulation, God has this word for the saints of the tribulation. Revelation 14.13, He says, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow with them. And it is not defeatism at that point in the tribulation, it is comfort there's going to come a point where the people of God, the saints of God, in the tribulation have done all they can do and God says, I'm bringing you guys home. I'm bringing you home. And By the way, that's what we mean when we sing as we did earlier, in death, in life, I am confident and covered by the power of your great love. So whether I die or I live makes no difference to me. That's up to God. It's His timetable. He'll let me know. In either case, I have a comforting peace. Paul says, Be anxious for nothing. Philippians 4.6 But in everything by power and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, put on your Bible belts. We're about to move pretty quick, as is my custom. <laughs> Isaiah is now going to use incredibly harsh language. To call out the paganism and the idolatry that is rampant in Judah at the time of this writing. And I want you to note this. Chapter 57 is yet another solid proof that Isaiah was written in the days of Isaiah the prophet, by Isaiah the prophet, and before the exile. We've talked about this over the weeks that we've studied Isaiah, this idea of a deutero-Isaiah that was written later on. Chapter 57 in the latter half of this book was written about a time... It is time-stamped by exactly what Isaiah calls out in this chapter, and that is paganism and idolatry and sacrifice to idols. What are you saying, Rick? None of that happened after the exile. It all happened before. So the judgment of chapter 57 you're about to see tells us this was written at the time that idolatry and paganism was rampant in Judah, which was pre-exile. I've told you before, when they came back from the Babylonian exile, they never struggled with idolatry again. That was no longer an issue for the people of Judah. They learned the lesson. It was always before We also know that the murderous reign of Manasseh took place and is called out, I believe, here in the first couple of verses about the righteous who are taken away, the righteous who die, the righteous who are killed. And yet God is going to take care of them and He will deal with Manasseh. But this chapter is clearly to the pre-exilic Judah. Verse 3, Come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? (laughs) If I had stuck out my tongue at my mom when I was a kid, I would have gotten slapped. And I know that (laughs) because my brother did. (laughs) Those who stick out the tongue, he says, are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit, who inflame yourselves among the oaks? "...among every luxuriant tree..." He's describing high places of idol worship. "...who slaughter the children in the ravines..." "...that is in pagan sacrifice, like to the god Molech..." "...under clefts of the crags..." "...among the smooth stones of the ravine is your portion..." "...they are your lot..." Even to them you have poured out a drink offering, you have made a grain offering. Shall I relent concerning these things? The judgment here is very specific. Idol worship and pagan sacrifice that was going on in Israel. Smooth stones of the ravine. This refers, this is interesting, it refers to river rocks smoothed over by the rushing water, polished smooth, that were picked up by the children of Israel, anointed with oil and kept as pagan good luck charms. It's part of the idolatry that was going on in the day. Well, thankfully, people don't do that today, do they? Pick up smooth stones or worship stones like the black Ka'aba stone in Mecca. You ever just you can go you can go online, you can Google that and watch Muslims surrounding that site, trying, if possible, to get close enough to the black stone to kiss it because because Muhammad said this stone, this is a an important piece of artifact here. And it's no different. In fact, the Kaaba stone in Mecca, some experts say, was likely one of these pagan stones before Muhammad lifted it up and said this stone is important to Islam. I would say it's still one of the pagan stones, but hey, that's just me. Verse 7, Upon a high and lofty mountain you have made your bed You also went up there to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you set up your sign. Indeed, far removed from me you have uncovered yourself and have gone up and made your bed wide. You have made uh, an agreement for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked upon their manhood. You have journeyed to the king with oil and increased your perfumes. You have sent your envoys a great distance and made them go down into Sheol. Now let me explain what's going on here. As you read this, at first he calls them prostitutes, adulterers. He talks almost in sexual terms, right? Comparing sexual adultery and sexual prostitution to idolatry. Well, Why does he do that? Is it just a word picture? No, it's more than that. Idolatry is sexual sin. And in those days, you were not an idol worshiper without partaking in the sexual uh, immorality that went along with it. You go to a temple prostitute. You would have sex with a temple prostitute to worship that temple's God. You go up into the high places to have these pagan sacrifices and offerings. You would dance around in very lewd and sexual ways. And there was sex taking place there. So it was a lot more than... I mean, it would be bad enough just worshipping another God, but it was worshipping another God and it was the whole sexual sin with it. And Paul comes around and says, don't you realize that when you commit sexual immorality, it's sin against your own body and that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And I think, a little side note here, but our culture, our Christian culture in America has completely missed that sexual immorality is idolatry. It's the same thing. And... Somehow the church has just become okay with it, and I'm not just talking about the ordination of homosexual pastors or 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 okaying homosexual marriage. I'm talking about heterosexual immorality going on among Christians sitting in church, but it's okay. It's idolatry. It's idol worship. It's no different than what Israel was doing. And note, you may have thought this was a little weird. It says, verse nine, "You've journeyed to the king with oil and increased your perfumes. What's that all about?" You've sent your envoys a great distance and made them go down to Sheol. What's he saying in verse 9? Verse 9 is interesting because the word there for king in the Hebrew is melech, M-E-L-E-C-H. There are no vowels in the Hebrew. It would just be the M, the L, and the th sound, the, the K or the C-H sound, melech. Interesting because that same word, depending on the, the little jots that you put on the consonants, is, looks exactly the same as Molech. Molech, Molech. Isaiah is using a wordplay here that we wouldn't see otherwise when he says you have journeyed to the king. You have journeyed to Molech. With your oil and you've increased your perfumes, all about sensual things, and you sent your envoys a great distance and made them go down to Sheol. What's he saying? The envoys sent from Molech went one direction, to hell. You're killing yourselves here. And this indictment that is so strong against the idolatry going on in Israel could not have been made after the exile. So we know exactly when Isaiah was writing this and that it was, in fact, Isaiah who wrote all of the book of Isaiah. Verse 10, he says, You were tired out by the length of your road. Sin's exhausting. You know, Lies are exhausting. Just to try and keep it going. And yet you did not say it is hopeless. You found renewed strength and therefore you did not faint. Then here's the picture of sin and rebellion. And it's the opposite of restfulness in righteousness. The road of wickedness. It is exhausting. It will wear you out. It will wipe you out. The road of righteousness is peace and rest and strength in the Lord. And we don't seem to always understand that. People kept catching their second wind long enough to continue down the road of sin. Verse 11, Of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me, nor give me a thought? Was I not silent even for a long time, so you do not fear me? And I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. And he's using the word righteousness there, ironically. What you think is your righteousness or your supposed goodness. I'll declare it. I'll show you that with your deeds. We'll see what what they're worth. And when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry all of them up, and a breath will take them away. Verse 11 reveals a glaring error on the part of our culture today. Listen to verse 11 again. "...of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me, nor give me a thought? Was I not silent, even for a long time?" So you do not fear me? Listen. Viewing God's silence as indifference rather than as patience. That's the problem. Our culture views God's silence as God's indifference. He hasn't spoken to me so He doesn't care what I do on a Friday night. He hasn't engaged with me or our culture, so it doesn't really matter what we do because he's indifferent. He really doesn't care. He's got more important things to worry about than whether or not I'm walking righteously over here. And our culture says his silence is indifference. And I say to you, and his word says, no, God's silence is his patience. When God doesn't answer your prayers, it's because he's patiently working on something. It's like my kids coming into the kitchen time after time after time from about, oh, 3.30 on until dinner. Mom, when's dinner? Mom, when's dinner? Mom, are you going to make dinner? She's making dinner. Get out of the kitchen. And we go to the Father, why aren't you answering my prayers? Lord, why aren't you saying, why are you so silent? He is working. Get out of the kitchen. <laughs> Let God work. The Lord is not slow about His promise, Peter says. Some count slowness. He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But listen, listen, don't just apply Peter's verse there. Don't apply that just to prophetic future. Apply that to your your right now. Apply it to now. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness. His promise to you, his faithfulness to you, his work in your life. Right now, what we need, here's another principle of practical righteousness. We need a contented patience. A contented patience. And what I mean by that is not that we need to be patient. We need to be content with His patience. We need to learn to simply be content knowing that God is at work. And it may not be... In fact, it rarely is on my timetable. Be content. God's work in our lives and in this world... You could call it a divine due diligence. He has taken his time to make everything work out exactly right. He is thorough and he is precise and he is often what we would think slow moving, which in reality is what it takes to work out and bring about the ultimate perfect righteous conclusion. I cave into circumstances. God does not. He has not moved by the worry or the fret or the doubts of people. He is moved by His will. He is moved by the fulfillment of the big picture. Which is why Isaiah wrote back in chapter 40, verse 31, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not get tired. They'll walk and not become weary. A contented patience. Be content with His patience. Verse 13, continuing on, He who takes refuge in Me will inherit the land and will possess My holy mountain. And it will be said, Build up! Build up! Prepare the way! Remove every obstacle out of the way of My people! For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever and whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And this verse, this verse, uh, verse 15 is so big. It's just huge. The Lord states two amazing things at once. First he says, I live forever. Note that. The high and exalted one who lives forever. And in the Hebrew, literally, it's who inhabits eternity. I inhabit eternity. Moses in Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2 prayed, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born. Or you gave birth to the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He inhabits eternity. Wow. Amazing. But what's even more amazing is what He says next. He says, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to make my home in you. Jesus who inhabits eternity. Wait, 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 Rick. No, that's God who inhabits eternity. Right. Right. Jesus, who inhabits eternity, <laughs> Micah chapter five, verse two. Remember this wonderful Christmas time verse. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you will go forth from me to be ruler one from me to be ruler in Israel. And his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Jesus Christ, who inhabits eternity with the Father, and this same Jesus, who is big enough to spread out into all eternity. <laughs> Almighty great power. even bitty living space. <laughs> right? He dwells in the heart of the lowly and the contrite. Wow. Really? And gang, when the Lord dwells in the contrite heart, there is life. Says, I go there to revive the spirit of the lowly. I I dwell there to revive the heart of the contrite. The word revive in the Hebrew, chaya, and it's not a karate term. (laughs) Chaya! He goes and he dwells in the heart of the contrite, chaya, to keep it alive. Chaya means to live. And it draws from the root, well, you've heard it, the Hebrew phrase, lachayim, to life. To life. L'chaim. And it it's a Hebrew phrase that is that is like toasting in Israel. L'chaim. And God says, here's what I do. I inhabit eternity, but to the lowly, to the contrite heart, to the humble, I enter in and I breathe l'chaim. Life. And I revive you. Gang, we need number six. You want to live a practical righteousness. This is probably the most important of any we've said so far. You need a Christ-centered power a Christ-centered power that does not come from you trying to be righteous. Listen to me. If you work hard at righteousness, if you try to do it on your own strength, you're going to burn out. You're going to wear yourself out because there is never enough ministry, there are never enough good deeds, there are never enough things that you can sign up for that will make you righteous enough. And you'll keep going and going and going until finally, at the end of the day, you sit down and go, I am plumb exhausted. But when the Spirit of Christ enters the heart, when the God who inhabits eternity inhabits your itty-bitty living space, guess what? You are revived. You know you're in God's will when you're not exhausted. You know you're walking in God's will when you're excited and invigorated and revived to do the things of the Lord. But if you're exhausted, you need to slow up and have some Shabbat. No. Go to Saturday service at, at the 7th day of, No, I'm... no. <laughs> Take your rest in Jesus. Take your rest in me. I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, Jesus says. Depend on self, you're going to fry. Depend on Christ's spirit, a Christ-centered focus, and you will draw in, well, deep breaths of praise. Look at verse 16. I will not contend forever, nor will I always be anger, for the Spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I have made. You can't handle my anger with you, God says. Because of the iniquity of His unjust gain, I was angry and struck Him. Talking about Israel. I hid my face and was angry, and He went on turning away in the way of His heart. And I have seen His ways, but I will heal Him. I will lead Him. And restore comfort to him and to his mourners. God is not through with the Jew. Verse 19. Creating, and here's the outcome, the praise of the lips. The praise of the lips. The word praise in the Hebrew is translated fruit. Same word for praise. It's the word for fruit. He says, I will create fruit the fruit of lips. You've heard that before, some of you? Hebrews 13 15. Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. And so number seven and final one, a created praise. If you want to walk in practical righteousness, you need to walk in a created praise. What do you mean by that? I mean... Created by His work in my life. What He's done in me causes me to... I have to praise. I cannot help but feel beholden to Him. And that's the word we don't use enough. I'm trying to bring it back. Beholden. We were watching the series Christy the other night. And uh, I love that series. It's just so peaceful and just encouraging and a lot of faith. So we're watching Christy and one of the little kids comes up to Christy and she's a school teacher who goes into the, the hills and of... Um, Cutter Gap, which is in the Smokies, right? Yeah, great Smokies. So she goes there to work with impoverished people in this place called Cutter Gap, and she's there. And one of these little dirty kids comes up to her at the end of this episode and brings her a pumpkin that he has raised and gives it to her to thank her for something else I won't tell you, but went on in the episode. Brings her this pumpkin and he says to her, I, I brought this for you. And she goes, no, I can't take your prized pumpkin. And he says, I'm beholden to you, Miss Christie." I'm beholden to you for what you did for my mama, and I sat there and went. He said that and just struck a chord with me. I went, you know, I'm beholden to Jesus. Beholden, not not drawn to him legally, not guiltily coming to Jesus and going, oh, I've got to do what you say because <laughs> you know I'm, I'm stuck with you. No, I'm beholden to you, Lord. You have done such good in my life. You have created so much joy in my life. You brought me to salvation and righteousness you have given me a created praise I praise God because I was created to do so I praise God praise God because of what he has created in me the fruit of lips then he goes on and says peace peace to him who is far and him who is near shalom shalom which we've seen before in Isaiah right we talked about shalom shalom and by the way that's a Jewish reading even today in Israel shalom shalom You know, a double measure of peace to you, my friend. Shalom, shalom, one Jew will say to the next. And yet, without Yeshua, the words are empty. You can say peace to anyone you want. You can hold up the peace sign. And it means nothing without Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians 2.17, He came and preached peace to you who were far away, foreigners, eunuchs, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near Israel. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. He came and he spoke peace. Shalom, shalom. It is only through Jesus. Verse 20, where he says, Peace to him who is far, peace to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked, by contrast, are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up refuse and mud. What a picture. That's, that is a great picture of wickedness there. The sea stirring around. And all this muck and muddiness and refuse coming off the sea floor. And that's what wickedness does in a life. You're stirred up. You're constantly stirred up. And all the filth just keeps re spinning, keeps coming up all over you. And now Isaiah ends the second part of the book of Consolations. Three parts. This is the end of part two. Nine chapters each. Come to this end here. And he ends up with a similar but not exact warning that he ended the first part, part one, with, verse 21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And that's the conclusion. There is no peace for the wicked. At the end of the first section, Isaiah 48, verse 22, I remind you, he said, There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Catch the difference. At the end of the first section, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Says Yahweh. The Jewish name for God. Now at the end of part two, he says there is no peace, says my God. For the wicked. Ani Elohim. My God. The more generic name of God here is used. Why? Because now it is used to include the outsiders... He's not just talking to Israel, he's talking to all people saying there's no peace for the wicked. People of Israel who call on the Lord, there's no peace for the wicked. All the rest of you outsiders, there is no peace for the wicked. And he speaks to outsiders who be joined to the house of God. This is not a mean-spirited statement. He doesn't end in judgment, there's no peace for those wicked people. No, it's not. This is compassionate counsel. God is the Father looking upon us as sons and daughters and saying, Look, if you go down this road, you will not find peace. So don't go down this road. The lamp shining in a dark place, the prophetic word more sure, tells us, as we stand in the valley between the summits, it tells us, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. I want to end with this quote from Ironside who said, because prophetic truth is one thing that often makes men tremble, it should be driven home to their consciences. Prophecy ought to make people examine themselves before God and the truth of the coming of the Lord for His church surely ought to make every Christian heart ask, and I ask you to ask this question yourselves tonight, am I so living that I would be glad and ready to welcome the Lord Jesus at any moment. That's how you live with practical righteousness. And Jesus, we thank You for Your Word to us tonight. We pray that all these things, we would take them to heart. We pray somehow, Lord, That You would, by Your Spirit, empower us to live our lives in such a way that if You showed up this instant, we would be ready. That if You show up tonight as we're about to hit the pillow, that we would be ready. That in the middle of the day tomorrow at work or at play or with family or friends, if You show up, that we are ready because we are just walking in the light of the prophetic Word of God. Not people who are stuck in the doldrums of the valley, but, Father, people who are looking. We see the kingdom. And we see your coming, Lord Jesus. We see the mount before us. Teach us to do what pleases you and to walk in righteousness until you come. In Jesus we pray. Amen. And now I just want to ask you, am not trying to keep anybody here. It's not law. You don't have to do this. But I want to ask and invite all of you. Uh, let's just group up. Two or three minutes. If you want to go longer, wonderful. Get with two or three other people and pray together and pray about the very things that we've talked about tonight. That God would seed His righteousness in us as His people. And when you're done, you can head on out and have a great rest of your evening.